turn with me uh, to First Thessalonians chapter 2. We want to pick up our study in verse 11 and then bring it to the conclusion of the chapter up to verse 20. We want to look at the model servant this morning. As we began last week in chapter 2, this morning is part 2. And Paul is looking at the church at Thessalonica. Remember that this church is a young church. Paul was there for three Sabbath uh, weeks. He ministered to them. Many had come uh, to saving grace. And so now Paul has moved on. But he has this concern, this compassion, this grace uh, towards the church at Thessalonica. And he writes back to them because there was a concern. Many were concerned. If our loved ones have died, where are they now? Where have they gone? And they're also concerned concerning the second coming of Christ. In fact, they believe strongly that Jesus was coming in their time. They anticipated that great hope that should be in us even, and that Christ is coming back. He's going to return. That's a promise. I heard an old preacher say, if Jesus fulfilled the first scriptures concerning his first coming, we see uh, that he was born there in Bethlehem. We see him in the manger scene, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And so what makes us think that if he came the first time, that he's not going to return as he promised? And again, we know that Jesus will return. In that process, as we wait, let us be like the church at Thessalonica. They were servants of the Lord. How important it is uh, to serve the Lord. And so he speaks about this model servant. Now, last week in our introduction of chapter 2, Paul used himself as this example of a model servant. We also saw the word uh, of a model minister. Because as you look at the word to serve, a servant of the Lord, a minister of Christ, they are the same. They are synonymous when you look at the scripture. Now, we look at the pastorate and we say, well, the minister is Pastor Bob or Pastor Jeff or Pastor Jay. But the Bible declares that we are all ministers. And it starts with being a servant. We're all servants. If you look at the Greek word, uh, the word for minister, the word for servant, it is diakones. And so the word diakoneia is the same Greek word. And it means to serve. And a servant is one that cleans tables, one that sets up tables, one that would uh, tear down the tables, one that does the menial tasks. And so we see a servant, we see a minister. We get the English word deacon, and we see the deacons of the church. We see the deaconess of the church. But if we've come to saving grace, God has called each one of us uh, to serve. And so we begin by serving him. Now, when we speak of the pastor, we speak of the shepherd, poemim, if I'm saying the word right, in the Greek. And the poemim is the one that feeds the flock of God. And it is so important to see that. And we shared last week, not one that fleeces the flock, but one that feeds the flock of God. And that's what you're doing here this morning. You're receiving God's word. You're being fed God's word. As you go to church, as you go to various fellowships, that they would feed you the word of God. And so Paul begins with this place of being a servant, a diakonos, 
a minister of Christ. And we know that the greatest example is Paul's using himself. He's using Silas. He's using Timothy to the church at Thessalonica. But we know that the greatest example of a servant is Christ. He came to serve us. He came to die on that cross to give us life, life eternal. And so Paul begins here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, as you know how we exhorted you, how we comforted you, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Listen to Paul's heart now. He looked at the church at Thessalonica as his own children as he had nurtured them there, even for a short time of three weeks. He saw himself as the father figure towards the church at Thessalonica. But I like these three words that he uses here. We exhorted you. And so a lot of times the translation in the Greek is a little bit different. And here, to exhort them, we came alongside of you to urge you in Christ. And that's what's being done here this morning. When the Word of God is presented, it's to urge you, it's to exhort you, it's to comfort you. And he uses that word next. He says, we've comforted you. In the Greek, we have come to encourage you. Where? In the Word of God. And then he uses this word charge. We charge each one of you. The Greek is saying, we personally witness to you of Christ Jesus, of his precious word. And so we come to saving grace. We come to that place where we're a servant of Christ, and God calls us to this beautiful place. Now, a key as a servant of the Lord is one that serves Jesus, is one that shares their faith uh, of Jesus to others. It's one that has a love and a compassion as we see others. Now, I hope and I pray this morning that as you've come to saving grace, and I pray that you have come to saving grace, I hope you're not content uh, with your own salvation. But you look at your family. Maybe some of you, as, as husband and wife, you look at your children. Are your children saved? Some of us with our parents that are not saved, do you see your, your mom and dad? Do you care for their salvation? Some of us with our brothers and sisters, do you care for their salvation? Let us not just hoard our own salvation. But to be a servant of the Lord is one that wants to share their faith. And so we ask, why would we want to do this? He gets into it in verse 12 now. That you walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. Paul's telling the church at Thessalonica, we plead with you, encourage you, we urge you to live your lives in a way that God would consider it worthy. And so if God's called us to saving grace, that our conduct, another term, is that our manner of life would be worthy of the Lord. Because he called you into his kingdom to share in his glory. Now when we see the word walk, speaks of our conduct, speaks of our manner of life, it gives you the idea now that you're a Christian. You've come to saving grace. What is your manner of life? That I would walk appropriately is another translation. That I would walk appropriately in Christ. Now I want you to think about it. Before we came to saving grace, our BC days, I walked worthy in the manner of the flesh. I walked worthy 
in the manner of the world. I walked worthy in the manner of Satan and basically his demonic realm. He had us entrapped. Then now as Christians, we've come to saving grace. We've come to the born again experience. We're a true believer in Christ. I'm a servant now of the Lord. Paul is telling the church of Thessalonica, let your walk, your manner of life, your conduct be worthy of serving Christ because he has called you into his marvelous grace. Now, one of the things I love to share, if you're called to saving grace, then serve the Lord. If you're not going to serve God, you're going to call yourself a Christian in hypocrisy, then, then go back to the world. I mean, why, why would you even come to church? Why would you give of your offerings to the Lord? Why would you spend time in prayer? Why would you spend time in maybe even having to buy a Bible if you're not going to do what it says? If you're not going to serve the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, everything that's within you, that's your manner of life now. You see, I serve the world. You serve the world. But now we come to saving grace. Let us serve Christ. And I don't know about you, but when I came to Saving Grace, I wanted to shout from the rooftops. I wanted to share with others. And my first responsibility was to my family. I went back to my workplace, and my brother uh, was deep in sin. He was selling drugs. He was taking drugs. And I began to share with him. I began to share the love of Christ with him. So the manner of your life changes transformation because because now i know that i'm a child of the king and so this was the church at thessalonica and paul's encouraging them that we can be and we should be these model servants don't just call ourselves christians but they would desire he's going to use the word uh, to imitate we should desire to be uh, like the body of Christ that is serving God. Now let's go back to our text. Look at verse 13. And so Paul begins to give testimony of the church at Thessalonica. And he says to them, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. He says, Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word from men. He says, But as it is in truth. The Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe in Jesus Christ. And so look at Paul's heart here, how he cares, how he has this compassion, uh, literally, uh, for the church at, at Thessalonica. And also we should have that same position. Notice the translation of verse 13. Paul is being thankful to God. That when we preach his message to you, Paul says, you didn't think of the words that we spoke as being just our own words. You accepted what we said as the very word of God. And church, it was. It came forth very clear. And this word continues to work in and through those who believe. God's word is powerful. I want you to turn just ahead a few uh, pages, of, depending on the size of your Bible. Go to the book of Hebrews with me. Go to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at verse 12 with me. How many times we've heard that terminology? You believe in this word? You believe in this gospel? You believe in this Bible? You know, it's an old book. 
You know, the Old Testament is very old, and, you know, the New Testament, it happened in their time. We're living in the 21st century. Is this, is this fresh? Are these stories, you know, myths? Are they make-believe? I love what Paul the Apostle writes. I believe that Paul's writing to the Hebrews. There are those that say he is, he's not the author, but we know that the Holy Spirit used men to pen forth his word. But notice the, the verse now. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living. The word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even uh, to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and of the marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents, listen, of the heart. The intents of the heart. But notice as the, the writer begins that the word of God is alive. But the word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than a, a two-edged sword. So many times we think it's a dead word. So many times we think it's, a, you know, these scriptures are so old. And yet the word of God penetrates. The word of God cuts. Now some of you have been Christians for a time, but remember when you first actually heard the word of God, when you actually listened to the word of God. And maybe you read it yourself in, in the quietness of your home or you heard a preacher as you're hearing this morning or you turned on the radio, you turned on the television or maybe you went to an, an evangelistic campaign and you heard the gospel. And all of a sudden it seems like the preacher's talking to you. It seems like the pastor's speaking to you. The evangelist is speaking to you. Oh, I've been there, not just the first time I came to Saving Grace, but many times after, because conviction comes from the Holy Spirit as we read the Word of God. It's powerful, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I've never had surgery, but just recently, my brother in Southern California had surgery, and my brother called me up. He doesn't generally ask for prayer uh, these days, and he called me. And he says, they're taking me in for surgery. Pray for me. And I could have easily said, hey, you didn't call me last week. You didn't call me the week before. Oh, man, my heart was on fire. I wanted to pray for him. And I did pray. And I know that he went through his surgery, and I know the Lord went before him. He was concerned. His family was concerned. Anytime you go under the knife. But notice that Paul speaks about a two-edged sword. God's word goes in, and then it cuts as it comes out. And it says that it goes down to the depths of the very soul, to the very marrow. And it touches the intents of the heart. The word powerful, that the word of God is powerful, it's effective. That the word is sharp, it cuts deep. It's a two-edged sword. The word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and of the heart of man. A lot of times we think we're getting away with what we get away with. And yet the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is there uh, to bring conviction. It's important that we see the Word of God, that it's alive as he's sharing here. How many times we're convinced that what's being said from the pulpit, uh, that basically uh, the pastor read your mail. And yet that's the power of the Holy Spirit. When we came to Saving Grace many years ago there in Southern California, we started inviting family, friends, and loved ones because we wanted to see them come to Saving Grace. 
we had invited my sister. She'd been living with her boyfriend. And uh, we had told her, you know, you know that's wrong. Morally, it's wrong. And she says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to take care of it and such. And, you know, we invited her to church. She came to church. She sat with us, and she heard the message. And I'll tell you what, the script couldn't have been better. The pastor shared about living with somebody. The pastor shared about committing adultery, fornication. And my sister's crying through the whole service. And I thought, all right, conviction. And there was conviction. All right, she's going to come to saving grace. Uh, when we finally left and we're heading home, she's accusing me. She says, you called him up and you told him about my life. I says, no, I don't even know the man. I'm just coming to church like everybody else. But that's conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see, the word convicted the church at Thessalonica. The word convicted you. The word convicted me. And we must respond to that. And then God comes into our life. And God sets us free. There's a beautiful scripture that I love so much. My first Bible that I got, we covered it with, you know, leather. And then uh, one of my friends carved this out. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Speaks about a new creation. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things become new. God desires to change us. He changes us from the inside to the outside. And so many times the concept in the church is we want to change the outward man. Listen, you need to get a haircut. Listen, you need to get a shave. Listen, you need to put on a three-piece suit. You need to put on a tie and a coat and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we're so quick to try to change the outside. Has the heart changed? Has God given us a, a, a clean heart? And so the church at Corinth had come to that place of a servant of God. And Paul was encouraging them. I want you to turn with me. Leave a marker there. Go to the Gospel of John now. And go with me to John chapter 15. And I want to look at verses 1 through 4 here. We come to saving grace. God miraculously saves us. He sets us free. He sends the Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us and guide us into all truth. But there is that process as we grow in Christ. Don't just start in the Spirit, but we must finish in the Spirit. And so here in the Gospel of John in chapter 15, these are the words of Christ if you have a red-letter edition. And Jesus is speaking about this teaching on the vine and the branches. We know that Christ is the vine. We know that we, the church, the body of Christ, are the branches. And those branches are supposed to bring forth fruit. And we're going to speak about the fruit of the Spirit. And so... The Gospel of John, chapter 15, look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And then he goes on, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Sometimes God has to chip away that old man, that old woman. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. He's going to bring forth fruit in our life. Now, years ago, when I first read this passage, I thought the fruit that was going to be effective in my life is that I needed to share Christ with somebody. I needed to lead somebody uh, to saving grace. But that's not what the text is saying. 
but that fruit's going to come from my life. And if you're taking notes back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, Paul speaks of the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He speaks about this beautiful fruit that's going to be operating in and through my life. And he begins here that the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. And we're talking about agapeo love. That type of love that always gives and never wants anything in return. That type of, of love that forgives and forgets. That type of love that restores. That type of love that is concerned and cares for the poor. And then once that fruit of the Spirit, which is love, is established, then the remaining fruit will follow. Notice in Galatians 5.22, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But unless you have God's love, and that's through the born-again experience, how can you go on uh, to the other fruit of the Spirit? And so he goes on here in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, look at verse 3. You are already clean. He's speaking to the believers. You're clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You've come to saving grace. And so the church at Thessalonica had come to saving grace. But I need to remain in that place. There's a lot of people in our United States of America. They call themselves Christian. So many of us were born into the faith. So many of us were baptized into the faith. But are we truly born again of the Holy Spirit? Have I truly come to Christ? Am I abiding in Christ? And that's what Jesus is going to speak about here. In verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless he abides in the vine. Neither can you. Speaking to the church now, unless you abide in me. Now, if you look at the Greek word to abide, it's basically to stay in Christ. Sad, but too many people are Christian on Sunday morning. Too many people are Christian on Easter Sunday morning. Too many people are Christian on Christmas. But what about the rest of the year? Do I just go to church because, you know, I want to feel good? Or am I truly a believer? And how do I stay a believer? You see, nowhere in the scripture does it say that we finish, uh, that we desire to win the race, but we desire to finish the race. We desire to finish the race. It's not about me getting to heaven before you or you getting to heaven before me, but it's about finishing the race. And to walk into those pearly gates one day, and the Lord says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter the glory of the Lord. The church of Thessalonica had uh, such a, a testimony of their fruit, such a testimony of God's love. And it comes by staying in Christ. To abide in Christ will cause us to produce fruit as being a servant of Christ. Uh, let's go back to our text. Uh, look at verse 14 now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says in verse 14, For you, he's speaking to the church of Thessalonica, You, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things 
He says, from your own countrymen, speaking of the Jews, just as they did from the Judeans. But here's the key to being a good servant. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that they had become imitators. They became followers. They basically copied, they mimicked the other churches in Christ there in the region of Judea. Paul had established churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, and just a beautiful work. We see four missionary journeys of Paul. We see the church still today. And it's so important that we pattern after those that are serving the Lord. The church of Thessalonica was such a beautiful church, and they saw Paul as their example. They saw Silas. They saw Timothy as their example. I hope and I pray that we are examples to others around us. We are examples to, you know, our friends, our family, our loved ones. This is why I wanted to share with my brother immediately. It was a burden in my heart. And it should still be a burden. We should care for the loss. Now, there's a price to pay. Paul says, you call yourself a servant of the Lord? Be prepared. You're going to suffer for the kingdom's sake. And Paul spoke of that from an example because as we shared last week, when Paul was at Thessalonica, we read back in Acts chapter 17, he was preaching the gospel for three weeks and then a riot condition broke out from the religious Jews. They came against Paul's teachings. They came against Paul and his ministry. And so the church at Thessalonica loved Paul and they wanted to preserve him and they asked him to leave by night. Paul didn't want to leave. That's why he was only there for three weeks, just a short span. Then Paul goes on, we understand, there in the book of Acts, and he goes from Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, and then in Berea he has to leave because, again, he was attacked by these religious Jews. Then Paul eventually from there goes to Athens, and he's preaching uh, to the philosophers there uh, in Greece. It's so important. But it's not without suffering. The Bible says if Jesus suffered, we're also going to suffer. Now, praise God, not all of us suffer as we see uh, the, the saints in the New Testament and the saints in the Old Testament. But we all go through suffering. Right now, in third world countries, there is suffering. We're blessed in the United States. I mean, nobody's putting us in jail for preaching the gospel. Nobody's attacking our families for preaching the gospel. It's happening today in 21st century. And so Paul goes in further and is going to explain this suffering. But I want to take it to another position. Turn with me to Matthew in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And again, this is Jesus speaking. Now we know back in Acts chapter 9 when Paul had come to saving grace that Paul was warned. He was Saul of Tarsus at the time. He was warned that he was going to take the message uh, to kings and magistrates and rulers, but he was going to suffer greatly. And so Jesus tells us in this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, if you know your scriptures in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. These are instructions for the church, the body of Christ. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they shall revile you. They shall persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. 
when they revile you. The word to revile in the Greek here, they're going to reproach you. They're going to defame you. And again, maybe you've never been persecuted. Maybe you've never been defamed, but many Christians have. And then he says here, they're going to revile you. They're going to persecute you. The word to persecute, they're going to pursue you. They're not going to give up. They're going to be relentless. They're going to go after you. Paul was chased at every ministry he went to. Proof text in Acts chapter 17. They came to him there at Thessalonica. They couldn't find him. They went to Jason's house. There at Jason's house, they were uh, having home church, and they couldn't find Paul. They took Jason out, and they took the other brothers out, and they beat him. Paul had gone on to Berea, and then in Berea, he has to escape. And so it continually happened. But Jesus says here, blessed are you when they revile you, when they persecute you, they chase you out, and then all kinds of evil against you. Notice verse 12. It's a hard place to read. All this is happening to you, then Jesus says, rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're not exempt, church. Church of Thessalonica, there was some persecution. Church of Berea, there was persecution. Church of uh, Ephesus, there was persecution. We still see persecution today. There's a church spoken of in the seven churches of Asia Minor. One of them was the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was considered the persecuted church. Interesting about Smyrna, if you look at the, uh, the name Smyrna, it comes from a plant. It comes from the myrrh plant. And the myrrh plant was a very uh, fragrant odor. It, it expelled this beautiful aroma. But in order for this myrrh plant to uh, bring forth this beautiful smell, it had to be punished. It had to be crushed. And the more you crushed it, the greater the fragrance. But they were a, a church that was on fire. Blessed are you when they revile you, when they persecute you. So were also the prophets. We uh, live in great company. I was thinking about Jeremiah the prophet. The Bible says he was beaten, he was uh, spit upon, and uh, he was put into stocks. And so one time they put Jeremiah in muddied cisterns. We read about Daniel the prophet. Daniel, in, was for not believing or obeying uh, the laws of the land, he was cast into the lion's den. We see Daniel's friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they did not bow down to the image of gold. And they were cast into the fiery furnace. We read of Isaiah the prophet. He was placed into a log and they sawed him in half. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that there was great suffering in the early church. We're not exempt. Paul had suffered there at Thessalonica. Some of the church there at Thessalonica also suffered. And so Paul is encouraging them, but also giving their testimony. This is the product of being a, a servant of the Lord. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 15 now. He's still speaking about uh, the Jews that had persecuted them. These are the religious Jews. They persecuted them there at Thessalonica. 
And then Paul speaks of their testimony again uh, concerning these religious Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they did not please God and they're contrary, listen, to all men. Paul's testimony of the religious Jews. Now remember this, Paul was previously Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a very religious Jew. Saul of Tarsus belonged to the Sanhedrin. So if anybody was religious, it was his Saul of Tarsus now, as he's been converted in Acts chapter 9. He's never the same. He's a servant of the Lord. And so Paul speaks from experience. Now, listen to the testimony here. The Jews had Rome crucify Christ. We know that. Be careful with those that look at the Jews and call them Christ killers. We have to understand that Jesus gave up his life a ransom for many by choice. Yes, there was a mock trial. It involved the Jews. It involved Rome. And the penalty that was given to Christ it was ridiculous, but this was in the Scriptures. He was going to die for all mankind. And so the Jews did not put Jesus on the cross. But all the sins of mankind. And Jesus went to the cross willingly. Let me read you a passage of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, these are the words of Christ. Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life. Listen, a ransom for many. In other words, that Jesus chose to lay down his life. The Greek here for ransom, that he paid the full price. Listen, of a slave, of a slave, that he died for us to give us life. He became our servant, church. So Paul's testifying in verse 14 that the Jews had killed their own prophets. And these Jews here in verse 15 have also persecuted us. Paul understand or understood persecution from his own countrymen. If you're taking notes, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to give you some homework. Verses 22 through 33, Paul speaks about suffering for Christ. Now, grant you, praise God, not all of us suffer, you know, persecution to the point of death or to the point of being maimed. But each one of us are persecuted somehow, some way. You testify of your faith and you're persecuted. You're rebuked for it. You might hand somebody a track and they throw it back at you. But Paul was persecuted by his own countrymen. Persecution, he says here, was brought by these religious leaders, and it displeased the Lord, it says in verse 15, and it opposed all men because these men thought they were so pious. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives testimony that there was perils before the Jews, perils before the Gentiles. He suffered beatings. He was beat with rods. He was also beat with stripes or with whips. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was left stoned to death. So Paul suffered and he understood this suffering. And it's so important that we see this church. 
and we're in good company, Paul's saying. They stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets. I want you to read this with me. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Here's a beautiful picture. Jesus is looking at his Jerusalem, and he knows that persecution, greater persecution, is going to come to his countrymen. And yet they miss the Messiah, so many of them. And so in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus begins by weeping over Jerusalem. And you see, when I come to this passage of Scripture, I have to ask myself the question, when's the last time I wept for my community here? When's the last time you wept for your community? When's the last time I wept for my own family that does not know Christ? When's the last time you wept for your family? Moms and dads, what about your children? Are they saved? And so listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. And then he warns them. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. We know that this is, was going to happen to Jerusalem. In 70 AD, uh, Titus and the Roman army went in and leveled Jerusalem. Then he says in verse 39, for I say to you, he's speaking to the Jews, he's speaking to the church, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe the time will come when Jesus returns. We know that there's going to be a seven years of tribulation according to the book of Revelation. And we know that the church is going to return with Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us that every eye shall see him. Look at our technology today. If something happens in the Middle East, almost immediately, we'll hear it on the radio. We'll hear it on television. I mean, the Word of God gets out quickly. And so the news picks up on everything. Every eye shall see him. He will come in great glory, it says. He will come with his church. Beautiful picture now. And so Paul is telling them, uh, these religious leaders, they killed the prophets. Paul was one of them. Paul consented to the death of young Stephen. Back in Acts chapter 8, he knew that. Now let's go to our next text. Look at uh, verse 16. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. And these same religious Jews, Paul says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. And he says that they may be saved. They were stopping the word of God. They were hindering the word of God. So as always to fill up the measure of their own sin, their own wrath. But wrath has come upon them uh, to the uttermost. Paul's speaking about the religious Jews. He says they tried every which way uh, to stop the gospel, uh, period, at that time and still today. But especially uh, towards the Gentiles, Paul had a desire to minister to the Jews, but they rejected him. And so he took it to the Gentiles. They tried to stop that. And Paul says this was the result. 
They continue now to pile upon their own selves, but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. In other words, they have been sowing into the whirlwind and they're going to reap corruption. The wrath of God has come and will come again. The Jews were and are still are, are God's chosen people. He's not finished with them. Yet they have rejected God's Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They have rejected the Word of God, the Old Testament. And they, for most, do not believe the New Testament. They have listened, listen to this now, to their leaders and to their leadership. Then and still today, be careful with religion. I don't mean to offend, but religion cannot save you. Only a relationship with Christ. How many are going to stand before the pearly gates and stand before the throne room of God and say, I was water baptized. Did you receive my son as Lord and Savior? I belong to the church. My name was in the ledger of the church. I gave of my tithes and my offering. Is your name written in the book of life? You see, I had to come to grips with that many years ago. Be careful when uh, we buy into uh, the religion, the rituals, the rites, the customs, and the traditions. Eventually, that's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. But a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, is eternal, is eternal. You see, the religious Jews were fanatics. I mean, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, Jesus had to deal with them. Listen to these two verses. I want you to just pick up on them. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus says of these religious groups, these religious sect, leave them alone, he says. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch and that ditch is hellbound in luke chapter 12 verse 48 jesus is teaching about the responsibility of knowing god's word and sometimes we know god's word we hear god's word but we don't act on it well i know i have to be saved i know i have to be born again of the holy spirit but you know i don't have time right now listen to what jesus says Luke 12, verse 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. The more we hear the gospel, the more we read the gospel, the more we tune into a, a radio program or a TV program, and they're bringing forth the gospel, the more responsibility that we have. Now, I believe and I teach that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Please don't count Israel out. God is not finished with them. I believe that the seven years of tribulation are to woo back his people unto him. Every eye shall see him. They will see, they will see uh, Messiah return. Zechariah says that they will see the nail prints in his hand, his feet, and in his side where the lance went in. They will know. Seven years of tribulation. There's going to be seven sealed judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Many will die, Jew and Gentile. But God is not finished 
with the nation of Israel. It is so important that we see this church. Now let's go back to our text. And Paul's going to come to this conclusion now in chapter 2. Paul loved the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica was a young church, a vibrant church. They were on fire three weeks in the Lord, if you may. And they loved Paul. And Paul, in turn, loved them. They saw Paul as their model servant. Paul saw them as model servants unto the Lord. And Paul had a desire to go back and see them. We're not sure historically if Paul ever got back to Thessalonica. But notice verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, their hearts were still there, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul says, we, speaking about Silas and Timothy, man, we want to be there with you. I wish we could be there with you, but at this time it was not possible. And so we know Paul had this missionary journey four times that he went and he ministered this gospel of Jesus Christ. We know we're separated right now, but Paul says, my heart's there with you. What a beautiful picture. This is the love and the compassion. Remember, Paul considered them that he was their spiritual dad. They were his spiritual children. I think in Paul's heart, because he's not there and he had to leave. Remember, he was escorted in Acts chapter 17 by night. They moved him on to Berea, and then from there, he goes on to Athens. I believe Paul considered that he abandoned them, that he left them. But God had a plan. God wasn't finished with Paul. Some might say, well, Paul ran from the danger. Paul ran from uh, the problems there, the riot conditions. No, God uh, just protected him. We know that eventually Paul would stand before Nero twice. And there finally, the second time, Paul's head was taken off. So again, it's not without trials, church. And so here, Paul's desire to be with him. Look at verse 18. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, he said. Even I, Paul. Time and time again, but Satan, listen to this, he hindered us. We come to saving grace. God calls us servants of the Lord. Paul here is speaking about model servants there at Thessalonica. Paul was an example to them. You've come to saving grace and, and God calls you and God equips you. And then God sends you wherever it might be. We're all called. Know this. Some of us that have been Christian for a long time, we understand this. The enemy does not play fair. There's no rules and regulation in Satan's domain, in the demonic domain. And the enemy is going to come against you. He's going to come to search and destroy. Notice that he uses the word hindered. In the Greek, the word hindered means to literally uh, to cut into. Satan will cut into your plans always. You want to do something for the Lord. Some of you uh, struggle on Sundays to get to church. There's always something. Always something that gets in the way. You start prayer, the phone starts ringing. You start reading your scriptures, moms, dad, uh, moms especially, and the kids act up. You're going to try to witness to this beautiful loved one that you know you've set it up as a plan, and then something happens. The car breaks down. 
There's always hindrances. And so we have to be ready. We have to understand. And yesterday in our men's breakfast, we spoke to the men on prayer. And we spoke to the men the importance of prayer. And so as the hindrance comes, that's why we pray. I like what Vine's Dictionary of Greek words says about this word hindrance. He takes it a step further. Satan will break up the road before you, he says. He will place obstacles. He will place disturbances. He will try everything in his power to quench the spirit. And so we pray. Perseverance of prayer. Trusting God. Believing God. Leaning upon his faith. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul writes and he says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Remember what we shared out of Hebrews chapter 4? It says there that the word of God is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's so important that we stay in the word of God. I could write a book on the trials, the tribulations, the hindrances as the enemy tries to destroy. The enemy tries to uh, distract the enemy tries to put obstacles, and it's common sense. And so we stand upon the Word of God. Let me give you just a little bit of testimony of what Paul went through. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to read verses 7 through 10. You see, Paul was speaking from experience. He knew even though the church of Thessalonica was new, was only three weeks in the Lord, he cringed inside. He heard inside because he knew that they were going to go through trials. They were going to be tested. And I'll tell you what, the more you draw closer to God, the enemy wants you back. Remember, he lost a customer. He wants you back. But the Bible calls us to finish the course finish the race. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, I just want to share this, but Paul speaks about this thorn in the flesh. Sometimes it's physical obstacles. And so here, I believe Paul is speaking about that hindrance in his own life. He speaks about what Satan did to him. In verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surprisingly great revelations that he was receiving from the Lord, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Historically, we believe that Paul had an eye infirmity. But the King James says that Satan comes to buffet me, Paul says, to hit me with a, a fist, a closed fist. That's what the Greek is saying. And then he describes some of his turmoils. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take away this buffeting. Paul cried out to the Lord. We mentioned prayer. God knows. But listen to what the Lord answered to Paul. He says in verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes God takes us through the trials, the hardships, the pains, and God's building. Uh, James tells us that trials build stamina, strength, perseverance, character in my life. And so through the trials, I'm learning. He's making 
He says here, weakness is perfect in weakness. Paul was a servant of the Lord, but it was not without trials. And so look at verse 10 as he concludes this now. He says, this is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships, persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, listen uh, to the translation here, then I am made strong. You see, when I am being broken, when you're being broken, I have nowhere else to look but to the Lord. When things are going great, ah, praise the Lord. But what when the trials come, the hardship comes, the pain comes, a loved one is sick, a loved one has gone home to be with the Lord. Those are hurtful times. But God's teaching us, and I'm comforted by his word. I'm comforted through uh, these trials. Uh, I'm becoming stronger in the midst of my weaknesses. And so in a sense, it's good for us. God's chipping away that old man. God's chipping away that old woman. And we must surrender to him. When a devastation, a trial comes my way, we're supposed to run to God, not run from God. Let's go back to our text. We're going to conclude now. Verses 19 and 20, Paul's closing up this chapter. For what is our hope, he tells the church of Thessalonica. What is our hope? What is our joy or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? He's speaking to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it even you in presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming that they would be with Paul one day when the Lord returns? And so Paul's hope for them. And listen to verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. Now, I like the New Living Translation from time to time, and these two verses are so precious. Paul wasn't concerned of the rewards when he would get to heaven. The Bible says we're going to receive crowns. The Bible says that God's building and preparing a mansion for us. And so many times the church is all anticipation. I wonder how many crowns I'm going to get. I wonder how big my mansion's going to be. Listen, uh, we should not care about that. Let's just get to heaven. And I like what one old preacher said. Hey, listen, maybe God's going to give you a huge mansion in heaven. I'll tell you what, I just want to get there. I just want to get there. And if God gives me a broom when I get there and I'm told to clean the porch area of your mansion, praise God, I'm in heaven. That's all I want. But listen to the New Living Translation, verses 19 and 20. What gives us hope, Paul says? What gives us joy? And what is our, our proud reward and crown? It's you, he says. It's you. You will bring us much joy as we stand together before the Lord, Jesus Christ, when he comes back again. You see, we don't know if Paul got back to the church at Thessalonica. But he's saying one day we will see each other. There's been saints that have come through these doors through the years, and they've moved on. There's a dear sister right now that was part of our church, and she's dying of cancer, and she's in Abilene, Texas, and we can't be there. She can't be here. And if she passes on before we see her again, we will see her in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is saying. That's the beauty of the Lord. If Paul's a servant, Silas is a servant, Timothy's a servant. The church at Thessalonica, their servants, were all going to be together one day. 
and the glory of God. Let's all stand and we'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your precious word, your word that will not come back void, your word as we read in Hebrews that it cuts to the very soul, to the very depth of our being, your word that's a two-edged sword. Lord, the church at Thessalonica was such a church that was on fire, that was vibrant for you, that was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul could see them as servants of the Lord. But Paul also said, look at us as we serve the Lord. And they were looking at other churches that were serving the Lord. Thank you, Father, that we've come to saving grace. Thank you, Lord, that we are true servants of the Lord. And now, Lord, as we shared out of John chapter 15, that we would abide in Christ, that we would uh, remain in Christ and bring forth fruit the fruit of the Spirit, that love uh, would permeate our hearts and our very soul. Bless your people as they've come this morning, Lord. Minister to their hearts this morning, Lord. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and we all agree by saying amen.